Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider, here today with the China Tech Investor Podcast game. Elliot Zagman and James Hull talking today about e-commerce in China, the lessons that Facebook is apparently learning from WeChat, as well as the value or lack thereof in picking individual stocks to invest in. Elliot and James, welcome to China Econ Talk. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks, Jordan. Yeah, it's going to be in the, in the same place. You know, usually when James and I record, we're in, you know, God knows wherever. And I know that's kind of the situation with you too, isn't it, isn't it, Jordan? Lots of remote interviews. So, Elliot, I hear you've been uh, trampsing around live streaming studios in southern China. Yeah, well, I'm on, a, I'm on a, a Grand China tour for the month of March. So I've been in Hong Kong, Shanghai, up in Beijing right now for about 10 days. And, uh, and then I was in Hangzhou earlier for about, about a week. For those who who listen to our podcast, uh, the China Tech Investor Podcast, powered by TechNode, they'll know that you know I, I I'm a columnist and a, obviously a podcast host, but I also work a lot as kind of a, a PR consultant, usually for China tech founders, usually of either pre-IPO or recently IPO'd, you know, kind of small cap companies, one to two to three billion dollars. But one company that I work for is a company called Mogu, like mushroom, basically. Uh, okay. I talked about them a little bit. But what they do is, you know, they they invited me to just kind of come and hang out for a, a week with them in Hangzhou. And they do a lot of these, um, these fashion live streams where basically what they have is these um, kind of these, these key opinion leaders, these influencers who will... Uh, you know, do these these maybe four or five hour live streams every night. You know, they're they're usually funny. They're these very good improvisers, um, and they'll just sell clothes or or cosmetics or or whatnot. And a lot of them they'll just make a killing. But w- one of them that I visited was uh, this girl named uh, a young woman named Xiao uh, Jianxin or Little Sweetheart. So, and I thought. They were going to say, you're going to visit some of our of our influencers. And what I was thinking is, I'm going to visit this girl's apartment. She's going to have, you know, one of those circle lights set up. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that that's what I imagined, basically. We get there. It's a warehouse outside the city, right? Her husband comes down to meet us. And he goes, you know, do you want to come and take a look at our whole facility here? Like, a whole facility? Like, <laughs> what is this? So they send us over to, the, to this, this big, you know, warehouse space. There's an assembly line. Where there are basically, uh, they said they have they have sixty different workers who are all basically inspecting clothes that she sells during her live stream, and then you have a whole another assembly line of ba- people basically just packing them up and shipping them out. So they do um, uh, millions of U.S. dollars in sales per per month. They Jesus. Do, yeah, they do. Uh, so just this again, this is just the husband and wife team featuring the five hour very cute very compelling live streamer yeah exactly so um it's kind of like qvc okay um like the or home shopping network or something like that um but it's online um by the way when i was a kid i remember those like baseball card ones and then (laughs) my whole vision of adulthood would be like one day i am gonna like have 80 dollars to buy a mickey mantle signed Mm. card or whatever and now I have eighty dollars to buy a Mickey Mantle sand card, and am not. But <laughs> apparently, but uh, you know, the dream, uh, the the business model still lives, uh, most certainly. Yeah. So you know, they also have like a big customer service team. Basically, what the the main show is is up in this room. They have a studio, and it's this young woman, this girl from this you know small town in Henan. You know, she's a pretty normal 
you know, Chinese girl, but you could tell probably she's not, you know, super educated or professionally polished or anything. She's just a, a young woman. And her and her sister, basically, uh, for five hours each night, seven days a week, they will live stream to one to two million people. Yeah. Uh, and Casual. they have they have a huge rack of clothes, all of which they have purchased directly from these factories. And they basically all curate themselves. And then they um, will basically... You know, her husband, who you know runs this with her, and some other other colleagues are basically just selling them as they're showing them. So she she's curating them, selling them, and uh, you know just basically uh, buying directly from the factories, and then sending them right through her her warehouse, and then sending them on out. What are what are like kind of the costs, the prices they're selling these items for? Like what kind of range are we talking about? For these guys, it's pretty cheap. So basically, what they're doing is it's probably similar quality to something that you might get at Zara. But it's probably half the price. Yeah. So we've seen this a lot with like Taobao, right? You know, just go on Taobao, you can get all that close. But we also know with Taobao that there's a quality issue. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, in China, I think if you live here for a while, I mean, this is this is I think a little uniquely China, but not exclusively China, is that people don't always trust those like systems, right? What they do trust is somebody that they know. Right. And if someone says, oh, you can trust this person, you can trust this company. They're like, yeah, cool. I'll, I'll go with it. And that's really where live streamers have filled this uh, this this hole. Right. Is fallen into this void where, um, you know, if if I don't know, I want to get some clothes, but I don't know if they're good or not. I know that I can trust what Xiao Tianxin is good. Right. So or says is good. And I think we've you know, we see this on Instagram a lot, too. It's where it's starting to come up. But I think in, in China, it's um. You know, they're just light years ahead, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at Instagram. I don't spend my Instagram time, you know, looking at, you know, Kylie Jenner or, or these kind of folks. Right. But from what I understand, you know, you have to you can do some e-commerce, but you basically have to click on something that'll take you to another site. You know, it, it's not really, you know, closely integrated or, or seamlessly I think they, integrated. They did a beta sort of test or some sort of test with Kate Spade uh, where Kate Spade had an ad and you click it and it would open up. It's still in Instagram, but it's like another interface. So you have to, but you could make a purchase through Instagram was the, was the whole thing. It, this was last year, I think. Yeah. You know, I, I do find it interesting. There's, there's this, uh, this new documentary. I forget the name of it. It, it kind of paints the world of live streaming as this, like people's uh, desire, yeah, like people's, people's, desire. people's desire, Republic yeah. of desire. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, there's like a, there, there is like a, a kind of hellscape aspect mm. to this world, but I think it's also important to understand that, uh, you know, there's actually a lot of talent that yeah. goes into it. It, you, just because you are young and pretty does not get you a million, a million followers buying all your stuff. You know, yeah. as you said, there's, there's an aspect of like of entertainment and being engaging and right. especially if you're like a woman and your and your audience are females like mm. sex appeal is not going to be what wins you followers in the end exactly. so yeah. so i mean there's a real art i mean i don't know about art form but there's but mm. there's a lot of uh, preparation and uh and and skill that really goes into this and and being able to keep people um uh, keep people entertained and, and coming back to you on a day-to-day basis and trust is a pretty difficult thing to build live streaming over a phone yeah uh, right exactly you uh, have watching to have every once in a while and to be able to do that i think is something is something really remarkable so so one of the cool things in people's republic of desire was uh because the you could as a viewer of these influencers you could interact with them and you could start to develop a connection or some sort of relationship with them and you would actually 
they become almost like your friend, like you wanted to spend time watching them on their show and listening to them. And they were saying things that you identified with in your life that you weren't even able to verbalize, right? Yeah. And so it created this cool kind of, and I think, you know, that documentary is great. I really liked it, but it got at this kind of, that there's some, like something lacking in the, in for the young people here uh, where they can't find like people that really cater to their views or their situations and circumstances. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit difficult for me to talk about this because I mean, normally on, I try to keep, you know, what I do, you know, professionally or for money away from what I do as like a, uh, you know, journalism. A, 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 yeah. 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 So it's, it's a little, I, I have to be very delicate here, but yeah, I do think, you know, visiting these people, like it's not, you can tell like the, their lives are not always easy. You know, in some ways I, I compared it to a, a professional athlete, like, like the amount that they're working and the amount that you you tell, you can tell there is a physical toll that I think it takes on, on a lot of them. Yeah. Um, they also, they don't know how long the success is going to last and they're very successful. And there, there are a lot worse ways to make and a lot more dishonest ways to to make a success out of yourself, you know, yeah. and and they're doing well. They're setting up their families, you know, and and you know, for a lot of these people, they could probably stop doing this after a couple of years and be set for life, yeah. you know, if for the really successful ones. And yeah, that is something that I did notice you know, with with that that one young woman that I that I saw is that she just had she had excellent improv skills. Yeah, like she was her and her sister were standing there in front of the live stream. And they're basically, you know, going back and forth, changing, 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 you know, just from outfit to outfit to outfit to outfit. And at the same time, she's talking to her audience. She's making jokes. You know, she's this incredibly likable person and very, very funny. And and you can see she's just, like I said, she is, I don't want to say, I think it can be taken the wrong way to say she's just some girl from Hunan. But she also is like a, a girl next door. You know, yeah. she's you can tell she's not from like a super educated or super rich family. She's not super glamorous. You can tell if you are just your average 20 something young woman in, you know, a, a, a small, you know, not from Beijing or Shanghai, but from, a you know, a third or fourth tier city in China. You know, I can see why they would really resonate with her. And um, she's probably making these people's lives a little bit better, a little bringing a little happiness to them. Yeah. Um, giving them, you know, a, a reason to buy a product, you know. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, obviously there is there are always downsides of, of things like this mm. and, you know, new aspects of the digital economy. But I think that if you're against that, I think, you know, you're against a lot of entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, who's losing out like Zara and H&M, right? right? Um, like these are the these are the folks that these people are stealing market share from. So mm. it's um uh, it's it's an interesting trend, and it's like you know it's a real long tail thing. It's a real internet enabled thing, mm. and these are little small and medium sized businesses. And it'll be interesting to see um, which ones of them are going to create the Gucci's and Pradas of China 10, 15 years. Yeah, from. yeah, and that's that that's the, I think what's so cool about it is that I also visited and you know, like Zhejiang and Guangdong both basically have you know, the entire kind of fashion you know, value chain ecosystem, all in just a couple square miles of each other, really. Yeah. I mean, the you have the designers from Gucci or Chanel or whatever that come and say, okay, well, this is this is what's in style this year. But the whole rest of it from, you know, the 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 mid to low tier designers, you know, that you that will design the clothes for, say, Zara, um, a lot of them are Chinese, and then they basically just show the Zara people, like, you know, these are the designs we might want to do this year. Pick them out and say which ones you want to go with, and then, um, you know, we'll make them. 
Uh, and so you have, you know, the fabric, the, the, the manufacturing, the, the wholesale, there's so much of this that is all just in this, in this small ecosystem. And a lot of these people that are really just kind of these budding designers, so you have all this design talent down there too, where, you know, I think over the next few years, we can really start to see some, some of these homegrown Chinese brands that, you know, will they be successful abroad? I don't know, but they'll definitely have some success in China. That's for sure. Sure. I recently read this book called Amator which was this, I think, American who's been in and around Japan for a long time, writing about the evolution of men's fashion in Japan since 1945. And it told this fascinating arc of Japan evolving from a fashion society that was very buttoned down, very tight, um, and slowly but surely getting these new influences from the West and taking their own spin on things and craving this sort of authenticity and, and kind of growing and evolving to... Uh, you know, this, the streetwear and the and the bathing apes of the world. And now Japan is commonly acknowledged as like a premier fashion, um, you know, a global fashion capital that that, you know, fashionistas all the all around the world get cues from. And it was interesting thinking about uh, reading this book and thinking about the um, the ingredients that they needed for that success. So first, I think uh, the guy talked about the importance of having uh, this kind of global influence and global mindset. A lot of the first cues that the Japanese took to to bring in more global influences came from the American occupation and all these mm. GIs running around, and they're the ones with the money and they have the cool uh, cool clothes and whatnot. And so that was that was kind of the first big big influx. And then it also took uh, disposable income uh, of people being willing to spend on on quality, which is obviously something that China has in spades. Um, but the other really interesting aspect was. This idea of these, you know, kind of pretty out there individuals who cared a lot about a particular subculture and were willing to live very alternative lifestyles and invest their toil and labor into creating fantastic products that were edgy and that the um, that the police weren't necessarily happy seeing kids walking around on uh, in Shibuya. And there's, a, I think, a, a general idea of cool fashion being something that has to be pissing older people off <laughs> and being against the mainstream societal grain and and being something that's that's a little subversive. And it's an open question whether that last ingredient of like toleration of subversiveness is something uh, or, or not even necessarily toleration, but like, you know, not risking going to jail for subversiveness is something mm. that you are are going to be end up seeing in uh, in the Chinese fashion world. So, you know, I mean, just I was, you know, I'm watching this terrible Aichi. Don't uh, how? Uh, no, it's like Chun Chun Yan's. It's like it's like a American Idol, but for male idols who are all like 18 to 25. And at some point, I think two weeks ago, uh, the government decided that all the hair had to be black. So, um, so the, in, no in, tattoos. Yeah. So not, not, as, not just no tattoos, but no blonde highlights. So Aichi had to go back and remaster the whole like, episode. Wow. This like, you know, these three hour long episodes and just like, you know, do the Photoshop, like pour black paint on all their heads. And it looked absurd. Yeah. Um, and on the one hand, you know, this is like, if you want to rebel against something like, here you go. Right. But at the same time, uh, it's a, it's an interesting tension between having societal things you can push back against and just being too quashed that um, the your idea never ends up getting the traction it needs to 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 take you places. So. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Aichi because uh, so James and I on our podcast for those who, of you who don't listen to our podcast regularly uh, we have a, a a watch list of different Chinese tech companies yeah. that we kind of follow their stocks we follow their quarterly earnings and 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 just just keep track of them and one of them is Aichi 
and this is is a common discussion that we have when it comes to Aichi, is that they have a potential overseas market with their content. You know, they're they could be a potential global competitor to Netflix, but that is an issue. Is that how can they make content that is you know globally appealing and globally competitive when there are a lot more restrictions on on what kind of content can be published within China? Yeah. Yeah, and if they have to double create, double produce things that are completely different, uh, it's just the cost of it kind of it outweighs the benefit, right? Yeah, yeah. That's it. This is an interesting idea. I mean, how subversive do you have to be to to be like considered cool? You know, could you be subtly subversive? You know, you have one streak of a blonde like highlight, and that's like subversive enough? Yeah, <laughs> or a mischievous grin. You're right. <laughs> it all it takes is a look, right? Turning now to the relatively recent news with regards to Facebook's big new privacy push. A lot of uh, Western as well as Chinese media, I've seen a few WeChat articles about this, talking about how a lot of the cues that Facebook is taking seem to be coming directly from Tencent in the um, uh, social media ecosystem that uh, WeChat has spawned. So any thoughts about this? What's going on here? And, and where do you see the differences when it comes to data privacy and the like coming uh, from a consumer perspective? Uh, okay, I guess I'll start. So I, I think Facebook bought WhatsApp in 2014. I kind of thought when they bought it that they would start immediately implementing kind of a WeChat clone, bringing in more like groups and kind of having like a moments thing added to it. But then you're kind of competing with Facebook feed. Like when when Mark did uh, his memo, he did talk about, you know, how privacy encryption and kind of the one to one or one to a small group of people kind of communications and ephemeralness of of stories is the the major growth area for social media right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, China, there's I don't think many people talk about privacy or their their ideals of privacy or how they view, you know, whether the data, wonder the government's collecting data on them. But I think people are aware of it. I just don't think it's talked about very much. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is something that I think also in the last year that I've noticed has changed. But yeah, I, I don't see it being talked about on Chinese social media. But I do when I talk to my friends in China, and my friends obviously are not representative of the average Chinese citizen, but I do hear them talking about privacy in ways that they never did before mm. uh, they're far more aware of it now like or when i know like a lot of these these reports about the the social credit system in china i think it, it, a lot of it is overhyped particularly from mainstream media overseas um but even when i've said to chinese friends something like oh well you know like there are a lot of positive things that, that can come out of it like a lot of my chinese friends will be like no 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 that's scary yeah and and, and i i do think that um, you know, it is a, a complex issue, but I've been surprised by um, how many of my Chinese friends are a little, you know, freaked out by it. But also they're not re representative of the average Chinese person. You know, they're in Beijing, they're wealthier, they're more educated than the average Chinese person. Yeah. So, you know, that's a, that, that's kind of my takeaway on that. But with, um, I do think that, that we've seen a, just a, a pretty big, just kind of global uh, how to say like a, a changing, just a, a how to say a, a paradigm sea shift. A sea, there we go. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to privacy, and I, it is a very important discussion, but we see this with with GDPR in in Europe. 
you know, where I think James and I have talked about this before, and just about everybody I know uh, has been reading that uh, Shoshana Zuboff, the uh, Surveillance Capitalism book. Mm. Um, I'm listening to it right now. I don't read books. I listen to books. Uh, but basically, you know, she she do, she goes into great detail about how many of these business models are based on basically extracting data from our, our lived experience yeah. and, you know, using them for profit, but also using them for predictive kind of manipulation of our behavior, right? So one of James and I have talked about this before. I don't know if we recorded this, but we talked about Pokemon Go, for example, right. and how one potential, one monetization option for, for, for Pokemon Go is that they allowed, you know, like Burger King can sponsor Pokemon Go. And then the that, Pokemon yeah. Gym is at Burger King, right? So, and, it, you know, this, this is one thing. I mean, it's, it, I'll, you know, in the U.S., I think it's more about like how, you know, just the the whole like capitalist system and and the financial system can just you know completely walk away with it. Um, but in China, there's 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 the financial the component and the capitalistic component, but there's also you know the 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 social control component as well. You know, politically, that I think uh, you know is is also in in thought about from you know by a lot of people as well. So, and one thing I think that that WeChat does do is I don't see that too much from WeChat at least at this point. You mean the the um, gathering and trying to manipulate and kind of nudge you certain ways, gathering of your data. Yeah, yeah I. I mean, they haven't really opened their ecosystem up to advertisers. Like the ads I do see on WeChat, which I've been seeing more of, but the ones I do see are seem to be pretty well curated and more like design, like cool, high quality. Uh, and maybe that's because I, they're targeting me for something, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting just kind of imagining what real privacy would look like on the Facebook platform, which I think we can get a little peek in through our our experience of WeChat. So you want to talk about a little bit about how contacts lists work and how that ends up meaning you have a radically different kind of understanding and, and relationship to all these people as opposed to being a Facebook friend with them? Mm. Well, yeah. Um... I mean, the, the biggest difference, right, is that, you know, on WeChat, you add someone uh, and usually the first thing you do when you add someone is you can like tag them or like set your preferences, whatever to, you know, if they're like work, you can tag them as work related, whatever. But you also look at their moments and you could scroll through someone's moments and you can start to see like your other contacts that you're connected to on WeChat have liked their moments. And that means that you you have a similar connection. Uh, whereas there's no really other way to see that, right? Yeah. There's, you know, on Facebook, you click see ones like, oh, we have 70 right. common it's friends. Very like, I know exactly yeah, who yeah. you know. Like, yeah. I know where you work. I know what, you know, football team you yeah. like I mean, just, and whatnot. I mean, there's just much yeah. less on there from a public profile standpoint and from a just general, um, you know, information that uh, uh, that you can that you can glean from someone's public WeChat profile, and, it, and it's I think well, another thing to, to keep into consideration here is just the business models of Facebook versus Tencent, and that you know we we've talked about this on because Tencent's obviously on our one one of the companies on our watch list is that Facebook's main business is the ads. Tencent has a very diversified revenue stream basically, so they have they have gaming. And oh, it's gaming majority gaming. The, uh, it's majority gaming. Yeah. yeah. But they're also going into a number of different avenues. They have a they they've invested. Very and gaming is ridiculous, like very profitable, and it can fund, uh, you know, loss leaders kind of things like WeChat. I mean, I think Alan Zhang, right? His the main goal with WeChat was to make it useful to your life, uh, whereas the main goal for Facebook was. 
to connect everybody and the yeah. connection would lead yeah. to better outcomes for Facebook. But then there's that really, and I think um, in, it's in the book, but there's that that memo that came out from the Facebook kind of VP or something about how connections and openness is always good, even if it leads to violence, huh. even if it leads to like bad things that happen in the world, it's still good for Facebook. So we must drive <laughs> for it. So it's like this, it's, it's actually, almost. it's gone, it's, extremist, it's gone beyond ways. morals. Like they're literally, yeah. you know, they've, they've gone over the deep end. I don't know. I, I kind of fall in the camp where I think they probably should be broken up. I actually think Mark Zuckerberg should, should support that because I think he'll get wealthier when it's broken up because he'll own all these separate things and they all do well. They get Rockefeller. Rockefeller, same thing happened to him. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, I don't know if Apple should be broken up, but I don't want to take the conversation there unless we want to go there. But, but. No, but an, excuse me, an, another great book that I read recently is uh, The Four by Scott Galloway. So he looks into mm. uh, Facebook, uh, Apple, Amazon, Google. You know, he, he's, a, he's a compelling writer um, and just, just really looks at these, does a good job of looking at these companies from uh, many different angles. But yeah, it was a, it was a very eye-opening. But what, one thing that, that I wonder about, and this gets back to the, the, the investment and the stock thing, is, is that I believe Google was the first company or the first tech IPO to issue the two separate classes of shares right, that kept Sergey uh, and Larry basically in charge of the company. And this is also what keeps uh, Mark Zuckerberg in charge. Right. Of the I don't know if they were the first, but maybe. Yeah. One of the first, the first big one. I don't know. This is yeah. what I could fact check me on that one. But I think it does create, I mean, these, these, these people are, they have a very specific set of experiences that is, you know, leading them to have a very specific worldview. Mm. And they don't often have a lot of people telling them no. They don't hear a lot of different perspectives all the time. And it, I think it, what it has created is a sense of kind of, um, I guess, like a Silicon Valley fundamentalism, I think might be one way to put it, in that that we're seeing kind of the negative side of right now in that, like, like in, in Facebook's case, is, is connection is always better. Yeah. Right? Um it, where they they build up these this kind of it's almost a, a cult like um, you know attitude and I think we also saw this I think in some ways I think you know when looking back at like the Arab Spring um, I mean look where, at the New Zealand shooting that just happened I mean that's not that's connection that was live streamed and that's yeah. not good for the world but but at least we're acknowledging and that's a, that that's bad right. I think during during the the Arab Spring you know I think. You know, looking back, I think there's a whole lot of ways that we we maybe didn't foresee a lot of you know the the effect negative. That have. Yeah. But um, there was a very much like, oh, Facebook and, and Twitter are are causing democratic revolutions, right? And there was a sense <laughs> but, of pride from that. I, I remember. Yeah, that. but but like this this idea that like Thomas Jefferson was just going to arise in 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 Egypt, right, and create you know this like a liberal democracy in, yeah, in mean, Egypt. That's a little a little twenty twenty. Yeah, twenty twenty hindsight. Going, going yeah. back to China a bit, you know, it's 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 interesting because there's that big four book. Um, I'm still waiting to read that one about China. Um, I've there's been a there's a fair number of books um covering mm. uh, individual companies i found most of them to be very hagiographic um very much like look at how awesome and brilliant the founder is um it's access uh, access journalism yeah, and you know 
like half of them have been written by BCG partners, you know, no offense to BCG, but it's, you know, if you work as a consultant for these companies for 20 years and then you're expect, it's kind of hard to expect people to write a real, uh, a real critical. Yeah. Critical. You've been giving them ideas that they've implemented that you're tied to in some way. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe the book is out there and I haven't, and I haven't found it yet, but it's, um, there's, there's so much to write about mm. when it comes to, um, you know, doing like big comparative analysis of these Chinese ecosystem companies. And, yeah. you know, as, uh, I'm sure you guys have talked about, and I've talked about on my show, it's like, as these companies grow more and more and have more and more of a global imprint, it's really important to understand what makes them tick. So, yeah. um, looking forward for the next, uh, generation, uh, of, uh, journalists, both domestically in China and then, yeah. uh, uh, foreigners coming in to, to, to take a real critical eye and, and really understand what makes these places work because understanding them, just like understanding Facebook is really important. If you want to know what's going on in the 21st century, uh, it's going to be the same for uh, a lot of these Chinese firms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that, well, actually I just spoke at a bookworm event on a, with the, uh, on a panel with the global VP of PR at Huawei, uh, and Josh Chin from the Wall Street Journal, and that's basically my, was was my argument with 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 Huawei is yeah. that you know like I don't know I've written a lot about Huawei like I I don't know whether or not what's what the what the U.S. government is accusing them of is true or false like I started writing about them just about their company culture um, and some of the issues that they had there and it, it was nothing political and and the whole political thing kind of you know it's a little it makes me a little bit uncomfortable with them but like that's ultimately my 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 issue here is that they're they're such an important company they will write a lot of the rules especially in the developing world yeah. for for the future of connectivity and um if we don't know enough about that company and if we if they aren't if they continue to be as closed as they are right i i do believe that that is kind of a disservice to um you know to to the world right and i think that they have a different we different set of a uh, degree of responsibility, but that is true with a lot of these Chinese tech companies. But one thing I do notice, and I think what makes Huawei a little bit different, is that you know Ren Zhengfei is seventy-five years old. He's an older, an older generation, seventy-four. Yeah. You know, you'll see that there's there's generally you know Alibaba has been more open than Huawei has been until maybe just recently with Huawei, and now with a lot of the um, the companies that I work with, um, they're these are these are younger thirty-something. Uh, founders and entrepreneurs. Also, I think it, 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 what I like about it is that they're they're a lot smaller, so they don't have, you know, all the same kind of things to worry about as as the bigger companies. But they are they're very. I find it just it's it's much easier to have an open conversation about who they are, what they're trying to do, and uh, you know what their you know what their business models are, what kind of cultures they want to build. And they they are very very forward thinking about that. And that's also why I do like I'm I'm so encouraged by kind of the bottling ho, um, the post eighties entrepreneurial generation is because I find them to be just you know not only are they you know super hardworking and entrepreneurial but they're very forward thinking they're I would say that a lot of them are, are far more you know they're more humanistic um, and uh, you know they're so I think in the future we're going to get probably a much more accurate book about the Chinese entrepreneurs that have kind of come of age yeah. in the last few years than we had with, for example, like, you know, the Alibaba book by Duncan Clark, which is, you know, a little bit of an advertisement for the company. Yeah. So I just spent two years at a master's program in China and China studies and doing it, I watched a lot of ITE, but didn't necessarily gain too many hard skills. 
Had I only known that at the University of San Francisco's new master in applied economics, I could have learned something to actually make me super employable. You know, R, SQL, machine learning, all that good stuff you actually see on job listings in Silicon Valley and Zhong Wansun, not necessarily have you watched all of Wan Song. So in this program, you can study the economics of platforms, auctions, and business strategy at the same time as you learn the tools of econometrics, experimental design, and machine learning. Plus, for all those non-U.S. students out there, this program is designated STEM, so you can apply for a three-year extension on your student visa and keep working in the U.S. after you graduate. To learn more and get an application fee waiver, go to usfca.edu slash Jordan. Just to preview a, an episode I have coming out in a little bit uh, with Christopher Marquis, who's a, uh, a researcher, and basically what he's been, what he's done is tried to understand like how living through the Great Leap Forward and living through the Cultural Revolution impacted your decision making. Um, and you know, he he does it. He looks at these data sets that are, um, you know, it's like, are you more conservative because you lived through us? You were you were living in a city that like had big food shortages or something. But you know, it's not just that you're less comfortable raising debt, right? It's also that you know you grew up in a universe in which foreigners were devils, and uh, you know you you were imbibed with this very red ideology. And growing as you as you were talking about the 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 '80s generation and the 90s generation even more is it's it's a it's a more global it's a more open uh mindset that values different things that has different uh that has different priorities and watching how that plays out is going to be one of the fascinating stories of the of the 21st century yeah and it's it's probably it's one of the things that makes me most optimistic about china and the chinese economy and china's place in the world have you have you recorded that episode yet uh thursday morning i do wonder like one of my kind of uh hypotheses has been that the people who lived through the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward and all that, uh, they tend to value more so than other generations uh, stability. And that because they lived through such unstable, just ridiculous environments uh, and had to really struggle and sort of survive, right? You know, I think like eventually maybe four or five generations down the road, which is like 80 to 100 years, that might kind of peter out and kind of this emphasis on stability might eventually kind of, you know, get loosened. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think just this is a global phenomenon, right? I Like my grandparents, they lived through the Great Depression and, and, you know, my parents had a bit of that growing up and like here I am having this really weird life path and like hanging out in China. Um, and had I been closer to that kind of like seminal sociological event, maybe I would, I would most certainly have a different, uh, sort of risk tolerance and, and different, yeah. and different mindset. So, you know, this is a, this is a global thing, not just a China story, yeah. though. I would say, you know, the extremes of what happened in 20th century China, I think are as, as crazy as you get, if you want to, um, uh, pick a, pick a lifetime. Arc. Yeah, if you look at world war two and the people who fought there, I mean, that was, not as long as the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. I mean, no. it was it was yeah. probably on the same similar magnitude of like dis, dis you know disruptive, um, but not as long. But and and I, I also do think that this has a lot to do with these. You know, this is for for a long time. This has kind of been a big issue of mine and kind of something I've been trying to like wrestle with and like just kind of asking why um, is just the transparency issue, not just with like the. The, the communist party or, or, or whatnot with China, but a lot of these companies as well, you know, like why can't they be more open and honest with their consumers and with the public about just what they are as a company, especially because a lot of times the companies aren't that bad, right? There's nothing really that, like, yeah. what are they hiding? Um, but I do but think- But it's like, hard to prove, right? The problem is that like, 
if everyone expects something and then you have to prove that you're not that it's mm -hmm. like anything you say that says you're not is sort of like yeah. Huawei how, how, how do you, you know it's it's really hard to win at this point yeah. but, well I, I would argue with Huawei though at this point like it, I mean it's hard to come come back at this point but like part of it is like they could have done that they've done better. but not yeah. that they've been you know doing this for decades more yeah. proactive yeah but but I do think you know if you look at you know the stories from like the cultural revolution it, it was a lot of you know and, and I don't I'm very hesitant to get too into like Ren Jung Fei's psyche or anything like that. Yeah. Or, but I, you did have, you know, where, you know, first of all, trust was just destroyed in a lot of these cities. Sure. Where, you know, you just had neighbor going after neighbor, family going after family, and something that was okay just a few days ago, or a, a, a political leader who, is, who you would support just a few weeks ago, right? And that was fine. All of a sudden, that become, that makes you a you know, a, a counter-revolutionary or, or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do in that situation? What's, this, what's the wisest move? The wisest move is just to not say anything. Yeah. Because saying anything, you don't know if it's going to get you in trouble later. So you can understand a little bit from that perspective. But also, I, so I could see how that impacts a lot of people. I don't know about maybe him in particular, but I think in that generation, uh, that's definitely there. Okay, so now let's turn to uh, the whole idea of stock picking in the first place. I'm a big skeptic when it comes to the thesis that any individual uh, kind of sitting at home at their desk doing research can can have a, a better sense than the market of what's actually happening. And um, thinking that you can and putting all your money into stocks as opposed to holding a more diversified portfolio ends up being something I think that's very dangerous and um, more risky than people um, have a general understanding of, uh, particularly if they have a relatively short time horizon and Definitely. haven't through big crises. Yeah. And um, ends up being something dangerous. And on the one hand, you know, I find, I think like, the idea of, you know, holding a few hundred dollars of this and a few hundred dollars of that as sort of like a hobby and a way to, you know, keep keep up on the industry and have a bit of skin in the game to be an interesting one. Um, but having it be a main part of what you're uh, doing with your, you know, retirement funds and your kids' college tuition, I find dangerous and, and frankly irresponsible. So I'm curious what you guys uh, think about the the potential validity of being an independent investor and uh, and trying to pick stocks and and make money coming in and out of the market. Okay. Well, generally, when it comes to this, to like the investing, I tend to be the dumb one, and James tends to be the smart one. I'm uh, dumb and loud. James okay, is smart would, and quiet. First of all, I don't know. <laughs> um, I would I would start off with saying like investing is very 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 difficult. It is not something to do and just kind of lightly, you know, sprinkle something here and there and, you know, think everything's going to work out. Diversification is incredibly important. Owning real estate is a good idea. That's usually very different than the market, although can be similar. Uh, owning some bonds and things. Being diversified is definitely worth it. Um, for me, like I started looking at stocks when I was a kid. And like any time I made money, I put it in a brokerage account and I've kind of managed it and kind of, you know, I've obviously lost money here and there. I've made some money here and there. But what I found that works for me is you have to kind of lengthen your your patience and your time horizon. You can't like, you know, one of the problems that we have is like for psychology for individuals is, you know, we want, we have fear, we have greed, we have cognitive biases, we we experience FOMO. You know, you have to fight these urges, and it's really actually uh, very difficult to do. 
the best thing to do is be extremely patient, do research, have a sort of process or some sort of thesis that you like, and you have to develop that and refine it over time. You know, it's, I mean, another problem that makes it even harder is that there's just so much, especially these days, it was different in the 80s. Uh, before reg fd and that but but even now like there's just so much more information and there's so much more information masquerading as fact and opinion masquerading as as fact um and so it's hard to actually weed through the signal and the noise and so i don't know i think that's it's something you have to kind of figure out how to do and it takes a lot of time and you have to kind of build the skills to to do it and you have to read a lot of primary source stuff. And it's fun to follow markets. It's fun to follow stocks. You learn about what companies are doing. You learn about interesting business ideas, which can you can apply. You can take an idea from one industry and apply it to your work. You can take you know, ideas that are going on in China, and you can apply them to what's what you're doing in the U.S. So the, studying companies is fascinating. I mean, there's more interesting stuff there to me. I mean... I'm not a sports guy. I like to play sports. I don't really follow sports, but I really like following companies. Sure. Yeah, I would say, like, I mean, I'm very much on the same page as James here. And I don't necessarily disagree with that much about what you said at all, really. But I, I, the joke that I always will say when it comes to, like, stock picking is like, you know what I also like to do? I also like to bet on NBA games. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't, like, I'm probably, when it comes to, like, NBA games, I'm probably, like, 50-50. Like, I'm probably pretty much out even, you know. Like, I win as much as I lose. But it makes the games a lot more interesting. And yeah. I understand basketball a lot better. Um, and I make, but I, I make a lot more money with stocks than I do on, <laughs> on NBA games. But I, I'm, I'm half joking here. But, like, I do diversify a lot, right? So my personal account, my play account is... Probably, you know, I don't want to go too much into detail, but but the the account that I have to play with is uh is a single digit percentage of my entire net worth, right? Yeah. So that's just my my personal situation with James. I think it's it's a good amount uh, more. Yeah. He also spends a lot more time looking into this. Yeah. Um, but for for me, it's about uh, a reason to to learn more about this, right? Sure. So one of kind of the inspirations for me to start this podcast was I, I was always a big fan of the Motley Fool. Um, so they, they have an entire, they have a podcast network, they have a website, they have advisory services, uh, all looking into, to, it's all for, for stock investors. Right. And I, I do think it's very important to have a reason to pay attention to markets and have a reason to pay attention to companies so that you can learn how markets work right? learn how companies work. Um, and it's, it gives you an incentive to be educated in this kind of stuff. Right. And that was, that's basically you know that was a big uh, uh, impetus for me to 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 want to do the podcast. Also because like James does look a lot look into this a lot more into detail. So a lot of it was just an excuse for me. Like I had I had a beer with James and I was like I want to talk to this guy more. I, I, this is gonna be an excuse to talk to him once a week. Yeah. <laughs> um. But uh. Yeah. So but it, it's I also think with with Chinese tech companies they are so interesting they the characters around them are are so fascinating um but they're also so they're they're it's a different world here in china they're different companies and if you're looking at them from the outside and you assume a lot of the thing a lot of the assumptions that you might have in the u.s or in europe or wherever with a chinese company a lot of those things might might hurt you 
right? So, you know, you have the, the common example of, I, I've mentioned this in an article I wrote a while ago, but um, the uh, the divergent evolution, right? The We, we, we use the example of the, the giraffe and the okapi. So millions of years ago, there was this common ancestor. It was basically like a deer in the jungles of Central Africa, right? And some of those uh, went out and, onto the savanna, and they evolved longer legs, longer neck, and they become a giraffe. And then in the jungles of, of Africa now, there's this thing called an okapi, which is basically just a deer, a big deer, right? Um, so you have this one animal that in a different ecosystem becomes this like very majestic beautiful thing yeah and this other one that doesn't really change very much and we do get this with with the internet in china where you have for example uh google and baidu where you had baidu basically you know they they start off as a very similar company they're both both search companies and they both try to go into ai and google has succeeded much better than baidu has although baidu has had some success but baidu right now is about a 60 70 billion dollar company and google is 400 500 billion or, or more well mm. I, I don't know the market cap right now but they've become the giraffe in that situation yeah right and baidu has trug- has struggled uh likewise meituan and groupon right so meituan basically started as a groupon clone where's groupon now not doing that well and meituan is worth what 50 50 billion i forget billion? around there it's yeah. big and important yeah um and, and yeah they're, yeah no there's usd is some really it's like 50 50 50 billion. Right. anyways um but yeah but in in that case they've been the the giraffe right so it's if you if you aren't actually seeing how these companies work on the ground in china and also if you're not really looking into their numbers um it can be hard to really um you know get a, a clear grasp on them and then also um you know there has there has the issue of fraud <laughs> in the numbers of these companies but coming out of china is is not exactly it's in a uh greater than zero chance right yeah um and it, it's not something that's never happened before um and we do often talk about how when there are certain numbers from certain companies that might look fishy right or that they, well, it's really difficult for them to audit that um and that is something that you know we want to draw attention to and talk about if it's there as well. Yeah, I think I mean if you're gonna be if you're gonna pick stocks, I mean you have to pay attention to the details of the companies, right? I mean, and and especially for Chinese tech stocks where you have these business model innovations that create very bizarre new accounting line items and things that have to get defined, and I'm sure their auditors have headaches over trying to figure out what these things are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you need to try to figure that that out. That's sort of a plug for an article coming out on Pinduoduo that, that I've written. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think I just think in general, you know, you look at these studies of professional asset managers and the best of the best of, uh, you know, the hedge funds of the world. And they're basically a coin toss. Uh, so the idea that you can sit around and, you know, you don't have a giant research staff and you don't have a professional background and you don't have the... Uh, the the type of access that uh, real ins- real investors with um, you know billions of dollars to throw around get at these companies the idea that you can beat them at their game is a fool's errand in my opinion so you know from your from your perspective Elliot like yes as a as a way to pay attention to this stuff I think it's I think it's it makes complete sense and you know if you can make a hundred bucks here or there then like yeah you're gonna um, you're gonna read that extra article you would as opposed to you know watching another episode of of, of a TV show or something that may have less ultimate value to your life or your or your career but i i would i would caution everyone to be um uh to be uh uh 
to be worried and be nervous and be aware of the fact stocks that go you down know sometimes. Yeah. Be, yeah. be yeah. risk averse. Stock, yeah. Stocks go down and there are big macro things that you can't control and have no visibility right. into and don't really understand uh, that could potentially take um, take a big chunk of your um, of money that you worked hard to earn away. So so yeah, by as a as a hobby, by all means, as a way to inform your um, uh, you know what what you're doing in your day job, by all means. But as a um, but letting letting a few early uh, early wins get to your head and let you think that you um, you know are some are some sage oracle or the next Warren Buffett, I think is a is a real uh, is a real fool's errand. And it's something and it's fascinating watching that uh, you know having happened to a number of. Uh, you know, Chinese who've yeah. gotten very rich yeah. very fast. Um, this is something that you've seen a yeah. lot, um, uh, a lot in the domestic wealth management industry, where people kind of pile into hot things, um, that aren't necessarily all that, um, you know, not the not the smartest money, maybe maybe more newer money, and then all of a sudden they just get they just get wiped out. I mean, well, I think here- that's that's in not just public markets, that's in private markets, private equity VC as well. Absolutely, people chasing the hot thing. It's that's part of like. FOMO that you have to be careful of. The thing is professional investors that are, you know, some of them use satellites, they're tracking how many cars are parked in, you know, parking lots at Walmart every day. And they're trying to use that to guess what their revenues are on a daily basis and make investments and bets on that next quarter's statements. Yeah, I saw there, a great or, thing about uh, about how people are now using Quaisho, which is this like uh, kind of rural yes, live yeah. streaming app yeah. to understand uh, agriculture farming futures. prices. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, who would have known? I mean, th- there are just so many data sets that you do not have access to and cannot process that um, <laughs> amount uh, of data. That's the problem yeah. is it's a processing data problem. But I mean, the problem is those guys are playing a short-term game and the game that an individual can win at still, uh, it happens to be, I think it's the only one that still exists, the edge that still exists is to play a longer-term game uh, where you're not trying to hit like a quarterly return or monthly return sort of uh, benchmark. You put some of your money in bonds and when stocks go down, you buy them and you kind of pick some stocks you like, you follow them a little bit, and you know, uh, when they go down, you you add to them. It's kind of it's it's like it's almost sounds so simple that you'd think, oh, it has to be more complicated than that. In reality, when you try to do it, it is very psychologically difficult. I, I think another thing is uh, that I try to do, um, and you guys can correct. I don't I don't know the data here specifically, is uh, to identify trends, uh, like long-term trends, and invest in them. So like one thing that I think is a, is a pretty reliable trend going forward is, um, is the world going cashless, right? So, you know, we've seen it here in China. Um, no one really uses cash. I came here with like 2,000 RMB in cash, and I still yeah. have not even spent 1,000 of it, you know, after being here for like three weeks. And uh, I... I do think that you know, we can be pretty, pretty confident the world is going that direction. So if you look at, okay, well, you got you know, Visa, MasterCard, Square, PayPal, Alibaba, or Ant Financial, Tencent. You, know, you have the, the key movers in this, in this area, um, and if you get a basket of them, right, you're betting on that trend. Right? And um, some might do better than others, but I, I think generally you know, it'll, it'll play out in the right direction. No. 
No, no. Um, you know, this is not a this is not a novel insight that you have. Okay. Um, this has been priced in. There are plenty of people who have been thinking about and evaluating this over time. Um, the idea that the world going cashless is going to be the predominant driver of these companies' uh, fortunes, or like the average of these companies' fortunes going forward, I think is I think is not necessarily all that reflective of reality. There are many other things that are happening um, within the financial services industry within all these different companies. I mean, yeah. Tencent, it's a gaming company. Uh, you know, to what like to what extent uh, WeChat Pay plays into that? Forty percent of their revenues are from I think even more than forty percent of their revenues are from are are, de- are dependent on what the Chinese government thinks is right. a good has you know what the Chinese government thinks uh, gaming gaming should be uh, what what role gaming should play in the, in Chinese society. Yeah. So you know it's very nice thinking about betting on. Uh, betting on big trends and you know this may be a more uh, fruitful thing if you're a if you're a vc investor and you have a high degree of confidence that this one type of biotechnology is going to be the one that's going to change the world in the next 20 years and you can bet on the 20 companies that you think have the smartest researchers that are going to be able to make this technology come to pass but if you're talking about things that are like already like out in the public markets that people have already done a lot of research on that there's already a lot of um understanding of uh you know having that uh kind of un ill-defined a uh, a vision and then making uh and then like putting uh you know some money on on 24 on the roulette table and some some money mm-hmm. on 26 and kind of hoping it works out i think there are going to be a lot of other things driving um driving all those stocks and driving that return on that bet that don't necessarily have to do with your um with your insight uh which may um which may or may not end up being uh the case in the first place it could so, be true i i think tencent may have not been the the perfect example along with the rest of them um but and I could be wrong. Yeah. You know, but I, I think I mean, uh, a lot of things you'll see, you know, even for professional and managers, they'll have a thesis that is based on some sort of trend that they see, but they'll look at each individual company and analyze it on a much broader level than just that trend. But that's part of the reason why they're looking at that company mm-hmm. is it's within that, that broader. So it's like the biggest one that's been the story in China for like 15 years is consumer. Consumer China is created tons and tons of value, lots of valuable companies and a lot of wealthy investors. Um, You know, so backing up a little bit, I think what we're getting at here is that there's a fair amount of luck involved in markets, right? And while you can have some skill and it may, might help you a little bit at the end of the day, uh, there's a great quote by Michael Malbison, uh, and I think he got it from Annie Duke, who wrote a book about betting and making bets. Sure. She's a poker player. Um, but it's something like trying to decide whether there's skill or luck involved in a game. And if you can fail on purpose, that means there's skill involved. <laughs> yeah. Now, in stock picking, you can pick a stock and you can think that you're going to fail, and you may not. Like it might actually go up, yeah. right? And it's like on gambling, on the roulette table, you can put money on 27 and you can be like, it's never going to hit 27. And then it hits 27. And you're like, yeah. you know, so it's, there's definitely luck involved. This is not, and that's why you have to diversify. You have to own, you know, safer assets and as well as some slightly risky. You have to create a portfolio that is like, you know, that's and so there's like so many layers of knowledge that you kind of need to get. You, know, you need the basic accounting. You need the basic kind of how to look at a company, 
how to understand the capital structure, where are your rights if things turn to, turn to shit. As an equity holder, they're at the bottom. Um, but then also, like, how do you put a portfolio together of companies? And, like, how do you construct that in a way that uh, minimizes the risk and you're not, like, totally on China consumer risk or totally on China media risk, you know, you or just China risk. Like, you want to diversify away from big themes and, yeah. and buckets yeah. and mm-hmm. you know yeah well, yeah i mean that's the that's principle number one right is basically work save invest diversify hold like <laughs> pretty much but yeah so and do i mean um, you should invest in things that you like like that are fun and yeah. that doesn't mean stocks i mean like if you want to you know if you like surfing you should invest in maybe a property near like a beach you know like like or invest in you know something that's kind of related to surfing, you know, something like you can, you can do interesting things that are fun and that add value outside of return, you know, to your life. So, you know, you want to like, it's not all about money and like making more money. Like there's, there's some kind of, there should be, what is the point of money? Money is kind of like a vehicle to something. It can be mm. a vehicle to mm. more freedom, to spending time with your family. It could be to giving your kids edu- like a good education. Uh, it can be, you know, like, I mean, there's like a lot of giving, giving away and like being philanthropic. There's a lot of things you can do with money that are not just putting a pile of it and locking it in a safe, you know. <laughs> May we all be blessed with um, with those sorts of those sorts of challenges. Uh, Elliot and James, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thanks, Jordan. It's it's it is uh, China Econ Tech Investor on this episode. Right, it's a crossover episode. All right. Thanks for coming on China Econ Tech Investor. Everybody, thanks for doing this (laughs) podcast, everyone. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shine